0: Uh, When I was about 11 years old, I moved from a house in Washington, D.C., which was a fairly small lot. My folks lived in a parsonage there not far from the church where my dad pastored, and we moved up to over 100 acres in Vermont, and it was quite a change. I spent a lot of time wandering the woods behind the house. And on one of my times exploring up in the woods behind the house, our house backed up to a a mountain. I was up exploring on the mountain, and I came to a place where there was sort of a pass. There was a dip in the profile of the mountain that passed from our valley into the next one, and it was a a wet and squishy place always, even when it was dry, driest part of summer. I remember you'd walk through in the... Ferns would be chest high, and the bramble canes would grab at your jeans as you went walking through there. But to the left, there rose on that side of the pass this enormous cliff face. It was almost vertical. And I remember one time I was studying it, and way up at the top, near to the lip, maybe a few feet below the rim of the cliff, there was a ledge. And I got curious about that ledge. Something in me said that I should go on to that ledge. (laughs) Now, the only way I could think to access the ledge was to climb around the side of the hill, climb up way above it, and then work my way back down. And it was a very steep hill, and I remember you had to kind of grab at bushes and saplings to check your speed, and I got down to the very lip of the cliff and I looked over. And several feet down below the lip was this ledge and it it was irregular in shape but it was roughly the same dimensions as like a couch it's about that wide maybe about that long and beneath that it dropped away maybe the equivalent of a few stories into this scree of jagged broken rocks at the bottom and i decided i'm going on that ledge don't tell my mom about this <laughs> <laughs> But what I did was I laid flat on my belly, and I grabbed a tree, and I started to kind of lower myself down over the edge of the cliff. Now, the first time I did this, I was terrified. I was really worried that I would do something wrong, I'd plummet to my death. But as I lay there on my belly with my legs dangling down over the edge in that tense, scary, dangling time, it felt like my whole being was concentrated in my toes as they searched blindly for the feeling of that ledge. I mean, it was like every particle of my being was in my toes as they just felt, where is it? It should be there. And then only when I felt the ledge solidly underfoot could I relax, breathe again. My whole foot came down. It took my weight. And then I let go of what I'd been holding onto with my hands, and I let myself slump down onto that comforting, immovable solidity of that rock ledge. This reminds me of a story from the life of John G. Patton. John G. Patton was uh, one of the first missionaries to take the gospel to the people of the South Pacific Islands, and he was working on translating the Bible into their native language on the island where he was. And he had bumped up against a really serious problem in his translation efforts. He could not find a word in their language for faith. Kind of a big concept, you need a word for that for sure. And he struggled without success for quite some time to find a suitable phrase that would capture the idea of faith. Now, Patton was working in those days before telephones or even telegraph wires had come to those islands, so they had runners whose job it was literally to run from village to village carrying urgent messages. And one day, as John G. Patton was working on his Bible translation A runner arrived in the village, and after delivering his message, the exhausted guy came and flopped down on the cot in Patton's tent, tent, and and he said, it feels so good to rest my whole weight on this cot. And instantly, a light bulb went off in Patton's head. He said, that's it. I finally have a phrase in their language that would capture the idea of faith. For for Christians, faith means resting our whole self on Jesus. The gospel is not a crutch that Christians lean on. It's more of a stretcher on which we rest our whole weight. He is our hope and our peace. He is our righteousness. He is the immovable and unchanging rock of our salvation. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And many have come to Jesus exhausted and proclaimed with relief, it feels so good to rest my whole weight on Jesus. Now many people, not all people, but many, will feel something very similar as they go about living their lives To that feeling I experienced as I dangled uncertainly above the ledge with my toes searching for something beneath. They are holding on to some things very tightly, but they know, guys, they know, they know that their grip on those things cannot last those things that they have anchored their life to and they're holding on to with a white knuckle, desperation, they know that at some point they're going to leave it or it's going to leave them. And at times it feels like their whole being is concentrated in the search for something more certain, more solid, more excellent, on which they can rest the weight of all their fears and all their hopes. Now, I say that that's true for many and not all, and I have no doubt as I'm talking right now, there are some people who just are wondering, how long is this going to go? And there are others whose antenna inside is right up. That is me, Pastor Josh. That is my experience. It may not be true every day, all the time, but there have been times where something entered my life or some thought, and my whole being became concentrated in that the quest for that something solid, sure, certain, eternal, that better and abiding hope than anything this world offers. And my goal this Easter morning is to help guide your feet down onto the solid rock of Jesus Christ. I believe with all my being that that's it. That's that solid ledge that the toes of your soul have been feeling for in the dark. This is the firm, immovable place of rest that your soul is feeling for, and I want you to feel the reassuring solidity of His promises and the rock-solid hope that comes from putting all your trust in Him. This is something the hope in which does not end when you die. This is something that you will never leave and will never leave you. And let that first point of contact between your searching soul and the rock of Jesus be the truth of the resurrection. If it can be shown that Jesus actually rose from the dead, if He really did, just as the early Christians believed and as the Bible claims, just as so many people proclaim they witnessed with their own eyes, All the other truth claims of Christianity will stand as well. In other words, if the resurrection is true, you can rest your whole weight on everything Jesus taught and said. The greatest, most triumphant, and the happiest thing in the history of things is the news of the resurrection. Death has been defeated, death itself is dead. However, this news is so good, it is so over-the-top amazing that most people in this generation who have been left so jaded and cynical after being so often manipulated and who have been so often the victims of all kinds of misrepresentations from advertisers, political leaders, and people who just generally represent themselves and their agendas falsely. When you hear something as good as this, it's natural that people in our generation would instantly push back in their hearts and their minds with the old maxim, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. We have all learned the hard way to kick the tires whenever somebody shows up making extraordinary claims. And then along comes the gospel, the gospel message, making its appeal appeal along lines that instantly trigger all kinds of red flags in our minds. First of all, we say it's free. Red flag number one, for sure. (laughs) I personally think, and I mean this, guys, I mean this with all my heart, I think that churches would be more full of worshipers if the message of Christianity was that you had to work hard to attain favor with God you got to put in more hours. you got to pay more. you got to do more, and God will see that and reward you. I think that would be a more appealing message to a cynic than it's free. The news that you're standing with God is not something you deserve or earn, but is a free, unmerited gift sounds, well, too good to be true. It sounds like the church is trying to sell the world something. At least that's how I fear it sounds when people hear it. I'm really afraid that when we preach the gospel, as the Bible says to, that it's a free unmerited gift. I'm afraid it lands on the ears of the world like one of those unsolicited emails from a random Nigerian prince. It's free. You can have everything in the world. Just send me your bank account info. I think when the church comes to people with, it's free, they go, yeah, but… But the gospel comes along, and in the words of Isaiah 55, 1, "'Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price.'" And the world goes, there's no such thing as a free lunch. That's malarkey. You're a con man. You're misrepresenting things. If we could only say that heaven and glory and pleasures at the right hand of the Father forevermore can be yours, if you're willing to strive and pay the required price, I really do think, perversely, more people would respond to that message than the gospel truth. That all that and more besides can be yours only if you are willing to become poor in spirit and adopt a posture of needy, humble reliance on God and receive them as a free, unmerited gift. I think their hearts would rise to something more transactional, something in which they're more in control, something in which at the end of the day they could say, I checked the boxes and you owe me, God. It would put their cynicism to rest if they could pay a price or somehow demonstrate their worthiness, and then, then I'd take heaven. Maybe then it would be true. Of course, for a whole host of reasons, that can't be the way it happens. For one, what a low view of God that would reveal. God is perfect. And when I say he's perfect, I mean he needs nothing. You have nothing to give him. A vessel that is full cannot receive. It can only overflow as a blessing to others. God needs nothing from fallen humanity. And so why is it free? Why is it a gift? Why can't we earn it? Because he has no needs. He is self-satisfyingly excellent. He's contented and perfect in all His ways. You can't give Him anything. He needs for nothing. And so if we are able to provide some service to God or do something that He needs, what a low view of God. What a small God that he would be revealed to be. But also, think about the outworking of that. It's a, it's a truth. It's a biblical truth that we are always becoming what we worship. We, what we revere, we end up resembling. And if you had a God who said, jump through my hoops, meet my demands, and then I will give you what you want, how would that translate horizontally in our relationships with one another? Would this be a community marked by grace and forgiveness? No, it would be a community marked by, you messed up, you better make it right. If that's who God is, it would gut all of the biblical commands, like in Romans where we're told to welcome one another as Christ welcomed us, or in John 13 where it says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, or forgive as you and Christ were forgiven. We could go on and on and on. There's so many of these statements. But when we think about what Jesus did for us and what that means for what we should do for others, then it comes into light that we didn't deserve it. It is free. Even so, as we talk about the resurrection, I am fully aware of how this might land on the ears of some people. (laughs) Can any news as good as the resurrection be believed? And I'll put my cards on the table, let's be totally intellectually honest about this. If what the Bible says about the resurrection can be shown to be false, if the resurrection falls, all the other doctrines of Christianity come tumbling down as well. And that's just not my observation. That is what the Bible itself says about this most central doctrine of Christian faith and hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wrote that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then he goes on to add that if Christ has not been raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied. So yeah, all of Christianity is built on this one truth claim. It all comes down to one handy bottleneck. Guys, if you want me to stop being a Christian, stop being a pastor, go get a different kind of job, stop doing this all the time with my life, all you need to do is convince me that the resurrection never happened. Because if it didn't, then my faith is in vain. All of my cherished hopes as a Christian are just fairy tales and make-believe. However, if God's Word is true and Jesus really was raised from the dead, then that you have to admit, if you're on the other side of this discussion, that that changes everything. Our labor is not in vain. To live any other way would be to make a complete and utter waste of your days under the sun. And it would be to squander eternity besides. What doctrines, what kind of things stand with the resurrection? Well, the first and maybe the most important is that there is a God. And that the God of the Bible is that true God. God. The first and most important question that any religion must answer is this. Is there a God? And if so, what is that God like? And I would suggest that both questions are answered in the resurrection. R.A. Torrey puts it this way in his book, The Uplifted Christ. He writes, Every effect must have an adequate cause. And the only cause adequate to account for the resurrection of Christ is God, the God of the Bible. While here on earth... As everyone who has carefully read the story of his life knows, Jesus went up and down the land proclaiming God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he loved to call him. This is the God of the Old Testament as well as the New. Jesus said that men would put him to death, that they would put him to death by crucifixion, and he gave many details as to what the manner of his death would be. He further said that after his body had been in the grave for three days, the God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament as well as the God of the New Testament, the God of all those words and all that they contain would raise him from the dead. This was a great claim to make. It was an apparently impossible claim. For centuries, men had come and men had gone, men had lived and men had died, and as far as human knowledge founded upon definite observation and experience was concerned, that was the end of them. But this man, Jesus, does not hesitate to claim that his experience will be directly contrary to the uniform experience of long, long centuries. Torrey continues, that was certainly a test of the existence of God, of the God that Jesus preached, and His God stood the test. He did exactly the apparently impossible thing that our Lord Jesus said He would do. The fact that Jesus was thus miraculously raised makes it certain that the God who did it really exists and that the God He preached is the true God." And of course, one of the very important things that the resurrection substantiates and proves was that Jesus was himself God. Throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus was not shy about making claims to divinity. Back during our study of the Gospel of John, some of you might remember, we studied many such instances when he would make the outrageous claim (laughs) that he and the Father were equal in their preexistent nature, do you remember when he told the outraged Pharisees and the temple treasury, before Abraham was, I am, and they took up stones immediately to kill him. How can you make such a blasphemous statement? Or in John 14, where he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Many other such instances where Jesus made the clear, unambiguous claim that he was equal to God in divine essence, power, and even in his preexistent nature. Now, those things that Jesus said, those claims to being God, they are either true or they are false. Either He is who He said He was, or He's a liar or a crazy person. Furthermore, if He is a liar, then those claims are more than just incorrect. They would have been wicked, offensive, blasphemous, a sin of the first order. However, when God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, he vindicated him in the claims that he had made to being God. And of course, all of the teachings of Jesus are shown to be wonderfully true because they were vindicated and substantiated in the resurrection. Jesus said he came to give his life a ransom for many. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Our future-looking hopes for a future resurrection and reward and glory are tethered to the historical truth of Jesus' own bodily resurrection. So the resurrection, if true, again vindicates Jesus and the entirety of His message. If the resurrection stands, the good news of the gospel is therefore true, and so too is the foundational basis of our hope in Jesus." And I'll, again, I'll, I'll own it to be true that if it's not, then all of my evangelistic efforts down through the years, though well-intentioned, would have been virtually indistinguishable from hitting send on an email from a make-believe Nigerian prince. It's true. So that, that's the lay of the land this morning. That's the stark conversation we're having. So this morning... If your hands are clinging to the things of the world, but your soul is feeling and searching around for something more solid and sure than this fleeting, uncertain place, if your soul is seeking for something solid that will take the full weight of all your hopes and longings, I want to help you see what proofs the Bible offers for the truth of the resurrection. And my prayer is that God would use our time together this morning to help you let go and slump down and let Jesus carry the whole weight of your soul. The first, and I'm I'm going to be appealing to the Bible, I think some Christians might say, you know, that we believe in the resurrection on the basis of faith, and maybe we don't need any proofs from the Bible, and I suppose there might be some kernel of truth in that. I think at some point what is needed is faith. Faith, as it's defined in Hebrews, being, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what, what we do not see. And apart from a faith that's given to us as a gift from God, um, I don't think any of these proofs I'm about to show you will be any help. Again, I think if God fails to open the eyes of your heart and see the truth here, but many times people have shared the testimony that in the sharing of these truths I'm about to share with you, God accomplished that very work. God does not ask you to turn your brain off when we come to this conversation at all. But you do humbly need to recognize that apart from God opening the eyes of your heart, no matter of persuasion will be much help either. I'm just hopeful that in the midst of this time, God will take this little boy's lunch, this feeble offering that I put together in my office this week, and he'll break it and make it enough for the great hunger in this room. Let's see if he does it. The first proof I see for the resurrection when I come to God's word are the resurrection narratives. Uh, we're all shaped in different ways by our experiences in life. And part of the way God shaped me as a human being, and maybe as a pastor too, is that along the way, He decided to have me go into this detour of training in police work. And part of my training in police work, and I think it, when I was actually in it, I had a fairly well tuned. Uh, radar for lies (laughs) I could I feel like I had a sense for when I was being lied to I remember one night I went to a car wreck this car had gone off the road and I got there and there were three young guys in the car and I took each of them in turn into my cruiser and got their statement from them alone and their statements were almost word for word the same and when I compared those three statements and they were exactly the same, I did not feel confirmed that, oh, they're all telling the same thing, it's true. I came away going, before I got here, they said, okay, here's our story. <laughs> I mean, they had the same phrases in their statements. And big time, red flag. Ended up that they, was, they had told me a, a total bunch of lies, But here's something I want you to see. The Bible contains four different accounts of the resurrection. One for each of the Gospels, one in Matthew, one in Mark, one in Luke, and one, of course, in John. And it's clear if you read them that these accounts were created independently from one another. These guys did not sit down and get their story straight. There's lots of details which I don't think they contradict one another, but seemingly on face value when you read them, you go, oh man, they should have had a conference or something (laughs) and nailed out the story the way so that it would flow more logically in everybody's minds when we read it. Their accounts differ from one another. They contain different details. And although they do not truly contradict one another, they do in places appear to be contradictory. For example, when writing about when the women arrived at the tomb, Matthew says it was toward dawn of the first day of the week. Mark says it was very early on the first day of the week. Luke says it was at early dawn, and John says it was still dark. Now, if they'd sat down and said, okay, when did they show up? These sort of discrepancies or seeming discrepancies would not be there. Even so, these kinds of statements, which at first blush, might look like discrepancies, are shown not to be when you think about them a bit. Although John says it was still dark, he probably doesn't mean that it was pitch black any more than Luke meant it was full noonday sun when he said that it it was already dawn. It's also possible that the women left while it was still dark, as John says, but arrived at the tomb after the sun had dawned. They've had some transit time between when they left and when they got there. It's actually reassuring that the accounts differ from one another while maintaining uniformity around the essential meaning of what took place, and that the early church did not feel it necessary to sort of massage out these sort of wrinkles in the narrative. For example, Matthew, in his encounter with Mary, Um, Mary goes to embrace him and he says, don't touch me, I have not ascended yet. But in another account, I I think probably just moments later, the other women in the party grab Jesus' feet and worship him. Now, I kind of look at that and go, well, wait a minute, he hasn't ascended yet, Mary couldn't touch him. Now, I actually don't have an explanation for that. I don't know why that is different for those women than it was for Mary or why that exists differently in those two accounts. But rather than come away feeling like, well, the whole thing's probably off, this is actually reassuring to me. The church has included things in the narrative that are frankly puzzling to us because that's how it happened. The narrative also includes details that might be left out if the whole thing was fabricated precisely, and they would have left these things out because they leave problems for the reader. For example, isn't it a problem that several times in the gospel accounts of the resurrection that the disciples did not always recognize Jesus when he first appeared to them? Mary didn't recognize him as Jesus. The disciples on the road to Emmaus walked with him presumably for hours and failed to recognize him. And again, I come back to my training as a police officer. I've spent time in court. I've made statements in court that attorneys jumped on and said, what do you mean? And here we're all standing in the court. You're all standing in a position of judging the veracity of these narratives. And what's on trial is the greatest, most important thing ever. And just imagine if Mary or the Emmaus disciples were giving their testimony in open court and they stated honestly that they did not at first recognize this man, Jesus. Think of the questions that would spark from the prosecutor. Did you have a clear view of his face? How's your eyesight? How long were you in the presence of this man? How close were you to him? Was there anything in between? How well did you know Jesus prior to this incident when you saw him? And so on. They would look foolish for confessing that they did not recognize him at first. That's mysterious. Including these kinds of details would leave the door open to someone saying, well, it's obvious that the reason you didn't recognize him is because he was somebody else. Only the gullible believed, and that's because they wanted so desperately to believe. Whatever whatever can be said for that argument, the point I am trying to make is that The reason why such details were allowed to remain in the account is not because they were helpful in supporting the argument that Jesus was resurrected, but because that's what happened. That's an accurate accounting. Jesus, for reasons that are mysterious, disguised who he was from their human eyes for a time. One more example, and then I'll move on. The first witnesses to the resurrection were women. I want you to think about this. Guys, this is something that does not land on our ears in our culture today as something significant, but would have been a major problem for the story of the resurrection in that culture at that time. Guys, women could not even testify in court. It was a non-opinion. They were not authoritative in the public discourse in that culture at that time. And this is significant because the very first witnesses to the resurrection were women. If you were going to sit down and say, okay, guys, let's come up with a story. And it's really important that it be believed. We're going to start a religion. Got to get it off on the right foot. No, no, just, just think with me about, um, again, I, I've talked about this before, but if you've ever watched like a documentary about UFOs, Uh, You know, some hillbilly from the backwoods is not as good a story as if you can get a doctor or a police officer, somebody like that, to say, yeah, I saw it. Okay, now, just translate that into that culture at that time. If you're going to start this story off, you cannot pick worse first witnesses than this group of women, What a poorly concocted plan to deceive the world. When the women first reported to the male disciples that they had had a personal encounter with the risen bodily Jesus, they were not at first believed. Look at it in your Bibles. They did not believe them because they were women. If this was all a hoax, women would not have been very compelling witnesses at that time. And maybe it's too much to say they didn't believe them because they were women. Thomas didn't believe the guys. (laughs) Thomas said, listen, guys, unless I see the holes with my own two eyes, unless I stick my finger in there, it's I'm not going to believe. So maybe that's too much. But again, I just say that if this was a, a coordinated effort to deceive, it's a poorly planned one, if that's true. And there are other examples from the various resurrection accounts that demonstrate convincingly that these four gospel narratives about the resurrection were created independently, but the core essential truth of what's communicated is the same. They are not designed in a calculated way to deceive. I think we can be reassured as we study these four different accounts. A second proof for the resurrection is this. it's the empty tomb. Now on the first day of the week, here I'm reading from John 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The empty tomb is is a proof for the resurrection. One of the questions we have to ask is, why was the stone rolled away? Later in the gospel narratives, when the disciples are locked for fear behind closed doors, Uh, Jesus just appears to them in the room. He did not access the room by way of opening the door. These things are not an obstacle to Him. The stone was not rolled away so Jesus could exit. It was rolled away so that His disciples could peer in and see that He wasn't there. The empty tomb is a very important proof of the resurrection. And lots of people down through the years have tried to answer it, that He was stolen by the disciples, that for whatever reason other people took His body and removed it. And uh, that debate may rage. In fact, the the guards who um, were stationed at the tomb were, um, according to the biblical account, were paid off to say just that, that that's what happened. But the empty tomb is certainly a proof. But another proof that's hidden here in this account is the not-so-empty tomb. It's the matter of these grave clothes. Um, I always, this was a throwaway detail for me, Forever, until fairly recently, actually. But when a body in that day was embalmed, they, they wrapped the body, mummy-like, round and round and round, in cloths, and then they would put spices all in the cloths. And here's what I think Peter and John witnessed when they looked into the tomb. They didn't see the, cloth, the cloths pulled away and spread around on the floor like they had been. They were still in the shape of the body. I think Jesus disappeared out of them and what was left, almost like the shell of a cicada on the tree, was Jesus' form in outline without a body inside of it. would have looked more like an art exhibit than what I always imagined, which was that they'd been taken off, unwrapped, and disposed of in a corner or something. I think when this is when it says of John that... Um, That when he saw the linen cloths folded up in a place by itself, that when John saw that, he believed. When he saw the cloths, it said, he believed. What did he see? I think he saw not that the cloths had been removed from a body, but that the body had been removed from the cloths, and the cloths are still there in their shape, in the form of the body with the body not present. And this was powerful proof to John that something supernatural had happened. Another proof of the resurrection that the Bible offers us is that there were many witnesses. According to the Bible, over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. This number includes Jesus' followers, but also people like Paul who were opposed to him. And Thomas, who was openly, verbally skeptical that all this could even be true. Again, unless I see the holes and stick my fingers in them, I will never believe, he told the disciples. And Paul, well, we'll get to Paul in a minute. But there were many witnesses, and when the gospel accounts were first written, there were hundreds of people walking around who would have backed up the story as something they'd witnessed with their own two eyes. They were not hiding the cards. They were naming names. Something else we see here is that it was a bodily resurrection. I don't know if this is a proof of the resurrection, but something that's very important to keep in mind. Again, speaking of Thomas, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the first disciples. For me, this has always been proof that different people mourn in different ways. You know, some people, when something terrible happens, they lose a loved one, they just want to get together with everyone they know. Other people just want to lick their wounds in private. I think Thomas was that kind of guy. After Jesus was crucified, all the other disciples, they get together. And Thomas, he's like, I can't even be around the scene for a while, guys. I need some time. So Thomas wasn't there. But in John 20, verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Uh, Here's the thing I want to point out here that's so important is that Jesus was, in his resurrection, was corporeal. He wasn't resurrected in spirit. He wasn't resurrected in the hearts and the minds of his believers. He wasn't resurrected in the Gnostic sense that there was some sort of a spiritual continuation of his mission. Jesus was physically, bodily resurrected, and he lives even now in heaven in a physical form. The only man-made thing in heaven are the holes in Jesus. And this is a hopeful, helpful thing for us who have ever lost a loved one or who fear death for ourselves. The Bible says that just as Jesus was resurrected, so too will all those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation. And that means a physical, bodily resurrection when Jesus returns. 1 Thessalonians 4, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So all these things are very helpful. The gospel narratives, the empty tomb, the not-so-empty tomb, the the thought about the grave cloths, and about the physical resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection. But for me, what has always been the most helpful proof of the resurrection, to my own mind, and every mind is different, is this, uh, that the, the disciples suffered so horribly For this testimony. (laughs) I've said it before on other Easter Sundays, but the first rule of lying is that the lie must benefit you in some way. It's the first rule. And if the disciples had not suffered and died because of their bold witness to the resurrection, we might have reason to doubt their claims. We might think, oh, they just said all that about Jesus being raised from the dead to save face or to get rich, or to get out of trouble, or so people would think highly of them. But what do you do with these disciples who persisted in claiming to have seen the resurrected Jesus even when it brought them so much hardship and pain, even when it resulted in them being thrown to animals, or boiled alive in oil, or murdered? (laughs) What do you do with such such people when all they had to do to make it stop was say, not even say it didn't happen, just stop saying it. That's all they had to do to relieve their families and themselves of so much suffering. These are men who lived without a country. These are men who went around the world living among people not their own. Preaching and suffering, enduring beatings and prisons, and ultimately dying martyrs' deaths, all of them. And all they had to do was stop saying this stuff. What do you do with these guys? That's a historical fact. So I don't think it's very credible to say these men were lying. I think probably the most dramatic example of this is Paul himself. The ninth chapter of Acts opens with Paul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus, and just a few verses later, he is proclaiming publicly Jesus is Lord. And what happened to work such a miraculous change in this man? Well, the answer is found in three words strung together in verse 5 of Acts 9, I am Jesus. The resurrection is what changed Paul's life. Those words must have dropped like a ton of bricks on Paul. He, guys, he, didn't, he wasn't feeling for the ledge. He landed on it. <laughs> it caught him just the same. But he landed violently on the ledge. It took him by surprise. It knocked his breath away. He wasn't feeling for it. He landed there. Because in, those, in that moment when he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus guys, there is a sea change that went on underneath Paul's very feet. His whole existence fell away beneath him. This is a completely disorienting sentence to him. Prior to hearing those three words, Paul did not believe in Jesus. He thought it was all a hoax. Jesus had been an imposter, and it was his livelihood, more than his livelihood, because you can't really say a man breathing threats and murder is just doing his job. It was his great central life passion to stamp out this burgeoning heresy, the church. But in this moment, Paul is confronted with some things. First, despite his zeal and his sense of doing God's will, all of his life as a Pharisee and his persecution of the church had actually been done in opposition to the very God he imagined he was serving. A voice from heaven had corrected and rebuked him, and there was nothing more to be said. He was wrong. Second, he could not escape the fact that the Jesus who he believed to be dead and whose followers he had been persecuting was very much alive and has to be reckoned with because he had been vindicated by God in being resurrected. So Paul, who had been a persecutor of the church, now joins the persecuted and becomes a proclaimer of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I love this line in uh, Acts 9.16. Ananias is a man who God sends to Paul to take away... Remember, you might remember from the account Paul is blinded, and Ananias goes to him to to remove, to help him. And he's at first hesitant because he knows Paul's reputation for persecuting the church. And in the midst of that exchange, Ananias is told... For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. (laughs) Why does Paul have to suffer? That's a terrible thing, right? Well, because he was going to be testifying to the truth of the resurrection. And if there was anything to be gained from that proclamation, people would say, see, that's why he's saying it. Paul is exhibit A. In the proof that the, the, the disciples, the apostles, those people who physically witnessed Jesus with their own two eyes, had to suffer much in proclaiming that truth. Because if anybody said he was enriched, or even something as small as he got a girl, or something like that, they would just latch onto that as the reason he said it. But no, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Makes me glad I'm not an apostle. But it does raise a question, which is this, am I living as a proof of the resurrection in my own life? Those are all proofs, but what do my kids see when they look at my life? (laughs) Uh, Why did Paul live the way he did? Why did Peter and John and all the rest of them, why did they live the way they did? Because of the resurrection, to live any other way would be a stupid and wasteful use of their life. But if the resurrection isn't true, then they lived the most stupid, moronic way a human being can possibly live. Moronic, I'll say it. It would be stupid to live the way they did if what they proclaimed didn't happen and wasn't true. But this is a very convicting question to turn on myself. I believe in the resurrection. What does that change in my own life? What do people see when they look at Josh Tate? How will people believe us when we talk about our hope if it does not wean us from excessive devotion to the things around us? Will people believe me that I found the ledge with my feet if I'm still holding on to the tree? (laughs) This is the ridiculous posture I think many of us in the church adopt. We say, my feet are on the rock, but yeah, I'm still holding on, (laughs) as though we don't trust the ledge completely. Are you, fellow Christian, every bit as careworn and covetous and grasping Are you every bit as dependent on the pleasures and fascinations of this dying world as your unbelieving friends? Is the way you spend your money and your time, is it indistinguishable from the way your unbelieving friends spend their money and their time? If the resurrection is true, it should result in a change in the way we live. You can have this world. I'll take the next one. But if it's not true, if that's not how I live, might not others begin to question whether we really believe all the stuff we say about the resurrection? The difference is enormous when the resurrection is actually lived out. Missionaries find the courage to walk away from promising careers, to walk away from a land that they love and know and in which they're familiar, to go serve in a foreign land among a people they don't know and a language they've never learned. Christians find the courage to live for Christ even when all of the culture turns against them. They find the courage to do all sorts of things because the resurrection has changed absolutely everything. And it's a convicting question for me. I look at Paul and I go, man, the only explanation for such a life is his belief in the resurrection. What about me? What about you? Your treasures are laid up elsewhere. You're going to get a new body. You're a sojourner. These days are short but meaningful for eternity. How will we live them? And what does our life, what do our lives say about the truth of the resurrection that we have embraced? Let's pray. Dear heavenly Father, I thank you this Easter for the solid rock on which you have given us to build our lives. God, what a sure hope we have in the resurrection. Jesus was raised, and God, that fact has changed absolutely everything. Now, I suppose a person could disagree with my findings. They could disagree with a Christian who has put their whole weight On the truth of that statement that jesus was resurrected and those who put their trust in jesus will likewise be resurrected that can be disagreed with but it cannot be ignored because if it is true then it changes everything and if it's not true then god christianity is not just incorrect it's wrong But Father, I believe that you vindicated all of the wonderful promises in Scripture in that great moment, that great and glorious moment when Jesus was resurrected from the grave. We thank you for so carefully preserving the story in your word. Thank you for preserving it as it was, even when as it was raises questions in our minds and we don't understand it all completely. Father, we thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you, Lord, not for the grave cloths that were removed from your body, but from the body of Jesus, but from Jesus' body that was removed from the grave cloths. We thank you, Lord, for the witnesses who suffered, even with their own lives, to maintain, God, the hope and the witness to the resurrection. I thank you especially for the Twelve, and God, all that they had to endure so that we might have our hope today in Jesus. Father, and I pray, Lord, for us as we go out from here this Easter, that you would help us to live differently in light of the resurrection truth. God, you have worked an amazing thing. And Father, I pray, Lord, that your people here at State Road would live in a way that demonstrates clearly that we believe in the coming day of resurrection. When every grave will be robbed, God, when all of our hopes will be vindicated, when the risen Lord will return in glory to take home with him all those who have put their trust in him for salvation. Father, between this day and that day, Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful as your church in the midst of these days in this place, to proclaim as your church always has, that Jesus has been raised from the dead and everything has changed because that's true. In Jesus' name, amen.